0: This is Andrew McCabe, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is.
1: No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist.
2: Hello, and welcome to Mueller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G. Joining me today to discuss the season finale of the Mueller investigation will be author of the book Dirty Rubles, Greg Oliar, And Jordan will join us later for her hot note on the NRA. We have an update on the NRA. I also encourage you to listen to The Daily Beans first thing Monday morning. Uh, It's our sister podcast. I'll be speaking to Lincoln's Bible about the counterintelligence aspects of the Trump-Russia saga. So you don't want to miss that. We do have a lot of news to get to. But first, let's get through some corrections.
0: It's a mistake. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. Oh, I made a mistake.
2: Okay. First correction is from Alexis. You guys are great. Jordan is so funny. AG, you're keeping me informed and sane. Uh, And you're funny too. (laughs) <laughs> uh, more of a reminder than a correction ag included the the news regarding the national institute of health recommending against a combo of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in the good news block i just wanted to point out this isn't really good news for patients who have been given these drugs my best friend's dad is in the hospital with covid and was on the combo of drugs until a couple of days ago these are scary times doctors are figuring stuff out as they go this uncertainty is truly terrifying when it's your loved one in the hospital yes uh, absolutely 100 um i I th- think, yeah, that shouldn't be touted as good news. I think that's just where the story ended up. Anyway, she says, saw you guys live in Boston. It was such a fun night. Thank you. Yes, it was. And we have Greg Oliar, who was with us live in Boston on the show today. So nice coincidence. From Liz. Seriously, AG, how are you so smart? I can't even deal. Uh, just a pronunciation note of voir dire, which is voir dire, as in Roger Stone's attorneys can't use their own fucking Uh, their own fuck-up during voix dire to secure a new trial for their client. I love that you guys take corrections so seriously and are so committed to getting things right. It's a big reason why I trust you as a news source. Thank you. I think it's funny that you opened up with how am I so smart and I pronounced voir voir dire uh, improperly. But thank you. voix dire. Got it. From Sage. I love your shows. You're totally freaking awesome. Just a small note. You keep referring to the Small Business Association. Uh, and the context where I'm fairly sure you mean the agency administering the PPP and other parts of the small business elements of the COVID response. I believe you mean the Small Business Administration. Yes, not the association. Uh, The National Small Business Association is a non-governmental trade group, and they're lobbyists. Thank you. Thank you. I'll remember to make sure that I get that correct. Um, She says, really? From Sage, think your shows are boss. Thank you. You are aces. From AJ, "Uh, I love the show. I've been listening for the last year and a half. Uh, I give you a correction, or at least a deeper understanding, of Brett Girard's situation from Texas uh, A&M as a local. He was indeed pushed out, but it was more to do with one Texas A&M official who doesn't like to be overshadowed uh, than his own uh, performance. He is among a bunch of great people who were pushed out by that person, his predecessor, who was the first female president of the American Medical Association. Uh, It was a great loss for Texas A&M. He knows his stuff. Take comfort in his involvement and keep up the laughs. Good. Thank you. Good to know. Um, From Cole. I listen to you every day uh, on my run in Dublin, Ireland. It takes my mind off how much I hate running. (laughs) Jordan mentioned UK health minister today. Matt Hancock figured you'd like to know. He's actually known locally as Hat Mancock. I know you guys like to be accurate and are fond of a giggle. Keep up the awesome work. The best is yet to come. All right. Hat cock. Good to know. Those are corrections. Thank you all. If you have any, please head to MuellerSheWrote.com. Click contact, select corrections, build us a compliment sandwich. We'll get it right eventually. And with that, let's hit the headlines with just the facts. All right. First up from Politico. Schiff and Nadler are now seeking an investigation into Bill Barr for his comments on Trump's firing of the Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson. As we all know, on April 9th, Barr told Fox News... Uh, And Laura Ingram um, from the Ingram angle, uh, which is what I call the Ingram angle, that Atkinson deserved to be fired. Barr said he deserved to be fired because he violated Justice Department protocols. But that falsely impugns what Atkinson did. And according to Schiff and Nadler, Barr making those comments violates the Department of Justice Code professional conduct. In other words, he lacked candor. Ha ha. (laughs) Sound familiar? Barr lacked candor. Uh, As you know, Atkinson is the guy who told Congress about the Ukraine whistleblower complaint. Barr tried to write up a new rule really fast using the Office of Legal Counsel, saying Atkinson wasn't supposed to do that, but the law is pretty clear. And for Barr to tell the public that Atkinson broke the rules is a lie and conduct on becoming an attorney general or any executive branch employee for that matter. So, or ma- that matter. so he, he lacked candor. And... Uh, the Sissy, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, has released volume four of its five part series on the Trump Russia investigation. And this comes just a day after Trump called the FBI a human scum at a press briefing for coronavirus and had Bill Barr release some cherry picked footnotes from the Inspector General report on Carter Page's FISA warrant. How convenient. Uh, this Republican led review from the Senate Intelligence Committee of the Russia investigation undercuts Trump's claims that Obama era officials sought to undermine him while investigating the attack on our 2016 election. The three-year review by the Senate Intelligence Committee found that the intelligence community assessment that pinned blame on Russia, that thing that came out in January of 2017, that o- Obama ordered, uh, and it outlined its goals, um, that that assessment outlined its goals to undercut American democracy. Uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee found that that report was fundamentally sound and untainted by, politi- by politics or bias or anything. Uh, the ICA, which is what we call the Intelligence Community Assessment, reflects strong trade craft. That's what the Senate Intelligence Report says, quote, sound analytical reasoning and proper justification of disagreement in the one analytical line where it occurred. And that's according to Burr, Senator Burr. He said the committee found no reason to dispute the intelligence community's conclusions. And it's important, this is important, because as we know, Barr has tasked Durham with investigating aspects of the ICA into Trump-Russia. He was specifically going after Brennan and Rogers, saying that because the CIA disagreed with the FBI and the NSA on the level of confidence that Russia interfered to help Trump, that the whole thing is just shot to shit. I think the NSA and the FBI had a high level of confidence and the CIA had more of a moderate level. I think that was where the disagreement was. And there was one analyst um, or a group of analysts that, that came to those conclusions, and Senator Burr said that there was sound, strong tradecraft, sound analytical reasoning and proper justification of the disagreement in the one analytical line where it occurred. And that's this one particular line. Um, Yeah. So this is, you know, the Senate Intel report looked very closely at that analysis, um, at the, the two, the, you know, and that disagreement. And again, found it was solid. Russia totally helped Trump, whether you're moder- moderately sure or highly confident There was no political bias uh, in that analysis, no wiretap of the Trump campaign, nothing shady about the investigation. Uh, This is going to make it very difficult, as if it weren't already, for Barr to steer Durham into any kind of conclusion otherwise. Just like the McCabe case or just like the Horowitz IG reports on Comey and McCabe and the Page FISA, they've got Nothing. They're delaying because they're waiting for something, anything to fall into their lap that they can use. But the FBI did such a good job in this case, they're actually having a hard time finding anything wrong outside of the handful of errors that occurred in the Carter Page visa application, uh, which Rod Rosenstein approved. And it was still concluded by the inspector general that that wouldn't have changed the outcome had those errors not been made. Ah, uh, they're grasping at straws. It's plainly, it's blatantly obvious to anyone that can rub two brain cells together. But if this administration doesn't like the findings, they don't release it. Um, ask yourself where the New York FBI Field Office Inspector General report is. Where's that thing? it's been it's, it's been due for over a year. So chapter five of the Senate's review, the next, the the forthcoming uh, chapter five, will include the counterintelligence aspects. and should be released before the election. It's expected to be about a thousand pages, and it's in the editing phase at the moment. I'll speak a bit about what to expect in that report later with Greg Oliar. And some more headlines. The full unredacted Mueller report is on Reggie Walton's desk, and he has said, uh, he had said last month he'd begin reviewing it behind closed doors on 420. Um, We hadn't heard anything uh, until April 22nd, when he issued a minute order that the party shall appear for a status conference on June 18th, 2020, at noon Eastern time, which shall serve as the target date for the resolution of the party's summary judgment motions. In the event that the court is unable to resolve the motions by this date, he says, the parties will be advised in advance that the status conference will be continued to a later date. So June 18th is the target date. And in other news from Washington Post, Flynn's defense lawyers claim, without evidence or specifics, that a review of materials from the Department of Justice include stunning evidence of FBI misconduct. Uh, The alleged evidence remains under seal, but Sidney Powell claims the FBI set Flynn up and he's been framed. Um, Now, Flynn is guilty of lying to the FBI about his calls with Kislyak. He wasn't charged with the content of the conversations uh, of those calls with the Russian ambassador, just that he lied to the FBI about even having them. We read the 302s. He lied to the agents. And during his first sentencing hearing on December 2018, Sullivan asked over and over the judge if he knows what it meant to plead guilty and if you know what you're saying and if you lied to the FBI. And Flynn said yes over and over and over again. The judge then advised him to go forth and cooperate more, insinuating, you don't want me to sentence you today, motherfucker. You need to go help out in other cases. And his lawyer said he was, and he was. He was helping out in the case against his business partner, Bijan Rafikian, known as Bijan Kian. He and Flynn lobbied Turkey and failed to register as foreign agents. And Flynn was seemingly given a deal on that crime in exchange for his testimony against Kian. But Flynn went from cooperating witness to unindicted co-conspirator as soon as he fired his old lawyers and hired the Mueller conspiracy theorist and Fox News tool, Sidney Powell. Well, now Sidney Powell is claiming the FBI framed Flynn and suppressed that evidence from the inception of the prosecution, knowing there was no crime. She made, she's made this accusation before, but this is the first time she's done it since Barr ordered the U.S. attorney from eastern Missouri named Jeffrey Jensen to review the Flynn case and assist federal prosecutors in D.C. The agency, that's the agency handling Flynn's case, and Stone's case. In separate filings Friday, the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. disclosed to the court that it has turned over to Flynn an unspecified number of documents obtained and analyzed by Jeffrey Jensen's office in the past two months in an ongoing review. Adding additional documents may be forthcoming. That review, ordered by Barr, included... That analysis of reports and communications and notes by agents and associated FBI personnel. That notice was filed by Tim Shea. That's Barr's lapdog, who he installed in the D.C. uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. The filing also said prosecutors had turned over more than 600 pages of exhibits and declarations from Covington and Burling. That's Flynn's OG lawyers, the ones who had him plead guilty. And Sullivan gave prosecutors until the 8th of May. To review the declarations, determine whether to interview Covington lawyers, and to decide how to respond to Flynn's allegation. As we know, in January, Flynn filed a motion to withdraw his guilty plea. Then Barr tapped Tim Shea to take over the DC U.S. Attorney's Office from Jesse Liu, who was unceremoniously fired. And he dispatched Jensen to review Flynn's case, and prosecutors backed off their max sentencing recommendation and said probation was appropriate because Flynn was an army general. Not sure if they realized Judge Sullivan doesn't play well with that excuse, as noted in his handling of the General Petraeus case. And separately in February, they did the same thing with Stone's sentencing recommendation, but the Department of Justice actually defended the original sentencing guidelines, or recommendations, excuse me, in court, um, and Stone ultimately ended up with 40 months. And finally, the Justice Department has announced... It will file a petition for a writ of certiorari, certiorari uh, in the writ of cert in the Judiciary Committee's efforts to obtain the Mueller grand jury materials. This is our Jaworski report, our modern day Jaworski report. The D.C. Circuit Court uh, ruled previously the DOJ had to hand over all the all the uh, grand jury materials by May first to the House Judiciary Committee. The DOJ could have filed to have the case reheard en banc, uh, but has decided to go straight to the Supreme Court. They've asked for a stay from the D.C. Circuit Court, probably hoping the panel that they have, which consists of a Trump one Trump appointee named Rao, who will likely vote his way, and a swing vote named Griffith, who's up in the air. So they've asked either for a long stay from the D.C. Circuit Court or a short stay from them so they have time to apply for a longer stay from the Supreme Court. Um, the D.C. Circuit Court could deny the stay, uh, and that would mean the materials would have to be handed over by May first. But for some reason, the courts are really like granting stays for this asshole. So, that's where my beans are. They'll grant him the interim stay. I think they'll give him a short-term stay to file for a longer stay with the Supreme Court. And I'll keep you posted on on whether or not I'm right. And now we have some NRA news from Jordan Coburn with Hot Notes. Awesome. Hot Notes.
1: <laughs> All right. Hello. Welcome to Jordan's Hot Note uh, for more she wrote from Jordan's Kitchen. I have one that's pretty satisfying today. It's a bit schadenfreude-y, which is always nice when we can work that into the main event. Uh, It's about the NRA. NRA's been having huge issues with lawsuits over the last year, as we know. Uh, we also know that these lawsuits and other assholery has resulted in the NRA losing a whole bunch of money. But we have an official number today, uh, as of uh, related to how much they've lost over their legal troubles, and the number's pretty big. It's a hundred million dollars. They have lost a hundred million dollars in legal battles. Uh, this is according to a recording of, according to a recording, <laughs> it's fun to say, uh, a recording of an NRA board meeting. That was obtained by NPR, so that's that's a pretty cool source. Someone literally got the actual recording to NPR, and they got to kind of get a little inside scoop on how this news was delivered and uh, what the response to it was. So it's it's pretty it's pretty pretty cool. Um, in January 2020, the recording was made. NRA CEO Wayne Lapierre he basically just lit up. Uh, <laughs> New York and Washington, D.C. attorneys general for investigating them. Uh, He said that it was an example of the power of weaponized government. And he said, I've never seen anything like that in the United States of America, to tell you the truth. I mean, that is Cuba. That is communist China. That is Venezuela. It's Russia. It's every other country we look at and we say, thank God we don't live there, LaPierre said. Is he talking about just getting... Investigated in general, is he advocating it would be better to have no court system whatsoever? Because it seems to me that they have zero problems countersuing people, so obviously they are fans of the litigious nature of this country when it benefits them. So I I love hearing him go on this uh, Glenn Beckian diatribe of communism. Yes, it's the communists' fault that you're being held accountable for lying to people about where and how money is being spent and uh, defrauding organizations and and all of the sketchy things that you've done that's catching up to you all karmically, finally, kind of, to a degree that you deserve. Uh, He told, I do not like the NRA, clearly. They just fucking, they're the worst ever, It sucks so bad that there's only one organization that represents this very large block of people in America that, you know, want to uphold and maintain the Second Amendment. It's in the Constitution. If you're for the Second Amendment, I obviously cannot hate on you for that. It's in our fucking Constitution. Um, So I believe that there's, you know, a real need for people to have representation for what they believe in and it just really sucks that they don't have any options other than the NRA. I personally am not a fan of guns. Um we had like a, a nice yeah, I was gonna self promote my other podcast, but I don't need to do that here. That doesn't that doesn't need to happen. My point is I've talked to people that that feel, you know, very strongly one way and the other and I happen to feel very strongly in the one way, but I still believe that people should be able to advocate for, for wanting that right that is afforded to them in the constitution. And it sucks that the NRA uh, is the only option. If there was another option, I'm so curious to know how many people would divert their funds or their support from the NRA to another organization. Maybe they wouldn't because it would be a thing of them needing this group to have enough lobbying power for them to think that their dues are actually going to do anything, but I really hope for people's sake who believe in guns, they can (laughs) believe in them as if they're like an imaginary friend or something. They kind of are in one way. Uh, But anyway, it would just be nice if y'all had other options for the people that are for guns. Uh, So Wayne LaPierre, he told the NRA's board of directors in the meeting that the organization has has had to make $80 million in cuts to stay afloat. $80 million. That's a decent chunk of change uh since last year since those investigations from new york and dc attorneys general started into the nra's finances eight board members have resigned over the last year and the nra has also been stuck in that legal battle with their longtime public relations firm that we've covered and that's ongoing um LaPierre said that the scandals have consumed his organization since 2018 and that it's cost the group dearly. He said, quote, the cost that we bore was probably about a hundred million dollar hit in lost revenue and real cost to this association in 2018 and 2019. I mean, that's huge. Uh, It is huge and it's deserved. Uh, It's not huge enough, really. There's even people, I mean, people are resigning from the board left and right, like we just heard. But, you know, the reason why they're resigning is is not because they have any sort of lack of faith in, like, the cause of the group. They have specific lack of faith in the leadership and where it's going. So the fact that LaPierre went up there and was just talking about how the NRA has been this huge victim and wasn't acknowledging any of the role he's played in it, you know, via his lavish spending, for example, and general financial sketchiness, was upsetting to some of the people that were even in that room. That room isn't just completely filled with yes-men, you know. um, It's people that want to still have a stake in an organization that they believe is operating how they think it should be operating, which is transparent, even though this is all relative, obviously, because the whole premise of so much of what that organization does is non-transparent but it's okay to be non-transparent with the other people you know that uh that are being affected by their non-transparency but once you start affecting the board members themselves with the non-transparency that's when shit gets fucked up there's a guy named ron carter who's one of those People. He's the vice president of Save the Second, and that's an organization that, you know, is just a bunch of NRA members basically who are urging financial reform and accountability within the NRA. He said of the meeting and what Wayne Lapierre was saying, he said the repeated statement from Lapier about the $100 million cost to the NRA should have come with an apology for having manifested the situation. Carter told NPR. "Uh, The lack of accountability is troubling for many members. So there's board members, members, supporters that are not having the way that Wayne LaPierre is handling all this. And all this hot note was, was to say, yay, the witch is dying slowly. It is bleeding out financially. And I hope it continues and there can one day be a time when Lane LaPierre La uh, does not run that organization. And really, I mean, ideally, it'd be cool if someone that was just like more morally consistent in general could run that. There, That would be so, there are so many people. I have so many people in my family, for example, that are like, I well, actually, that's a lie. Most of them are pretty into the NRA. I think one of, well, yeah, I'm going to backtrack here. I know that it's conceivable that people exist that are not fans of the nra but are fans of guns and hopefully there could be a more responsible organization in the future that pops up but in the meantime uh nra seems to be all there is and they're they're not killing it so yay thank you everybody that has been my hot note and have a great monday thank you for listening and be well and stay safe love you guys bye
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Joining me today is author of the book Dirty Rubles, An Introduction to Trump Russia. Please welcome Greg Oliar. Greg, thanks for speaking with me today.
0: Thanks for having me back.
2: Yeah, of course. How, how are you? How are you holding up? How's everything going uh, in your neck of the woods?
0: I mean, you know, it's not the greatest thing, but under the circumstances, I think it's fine. I mean, we're really uh, we've been fortunate and I think... um you know, I, I feel gratitude most of the time that I my situation is okay and my family is okay and you know I'm able to get food that I need and that I stocked up on toilet paper in advance. So yeah, I'm feeling good.
2: Good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, yeah, I think the last time we saw each other was when we uh, did the show together. Um, where were we? Boston.
0: Yeah, we were in Boston. There was a crowd of people. Remember when you could have crowds of people? That was fun. <laughs>
2: We had a few hundred people in a building. Look at us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm glad glad to speak to you again. And the reason I wanted to is because you've been doing a lot of writing recently, um, and specifically about a topic that I've been asking about, and I know you've been asking about um, for a while, what it seems like forever now. Uh, myself and others, such as Rachel Maddow, have been asking counterintelligence experts like Andy McCabe and Frank Fogluzzi just exactly what happens when and if they find out a president of the United States, for example, is compromised by a bad foreign actor or government, meaning who do they tell? Right. Um, because the president is, is the guy. But if he's the problem, what do you do? And you've recently put together a piece positing that it's just time to come forward to the public. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you've concluded and and, and how that process went for you.
0: Yeah, well, um, first it was it was a series of three pieces uh, written with Lincoln's Bible, who was a, an expert a, a researcher on all things mob and um, the IC. And we wrote this on Substack. I have a Substack page called Prevail. So there's three pieces that are there. The first one is called Tinker Tailor Mobster Trump, and it goes into Trump's background as um, a mob asset, basically. His father, Fred, was a mob asset. He was one of the first fronts for the mafia. Um, Fred was about the same age as Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky invented money laundering you know, criminal money laundering. So he was really got in early on the ground floor as being a front for the illicit activities, because in order to launder money, you need people that are quote unquote legit businessmen who will operate as fronts for you. And Fred did that. And Trump was born into it. Um, So he doesn't really know any other way. And there doesn't seem to be any um, argument that Trump was mobbed up. I mean, he was doing real estate deals, in manhattan in the 70s and 80s and in order to really do that you know a lot you sort of have to at least touch that world but he you know he had connections he used his can that he was a confidential informant for the fbi and for law enforcement so if something would happen um with one of the mobsters that he was dealing with he might have gotten into some trouble and was being investigated all of a sudden the mobster would get arrested and the investigation into Trump would go away. So the speculation is that, um, he's a confidential informant for the FBI and has been for a long time. Um, and I don't think this is a terribly controversial position even, um, you know, there's enough people have have sort of come forward and said, yeah, that's, you know, he did this, he did that, you know, what the exact details are. Obviously we don't know because the only way a confidential informant is going to be outed is if he or she, he, he, in this case, um, you know, outs himself like Felix Sater did, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, or, uh, if someone basically breaks the law and, and, uh, doxes him, Mm -hmm. which people in the FBI are not going to do because it's illegal. And it also, um, erodes the trust in the institution that is necessary for future confidential informants to go to the FBI. If they think that they're you know, not going to be protected, then they're not going to stop going. So it's, it's complicated. So that's the first
2: piece. It's sort of like the fact that, I mean, you know, people are always saying, you know, well, if Trump's been such a criminal this whole time, how come he's never been arrested or charged or gone to jail? And so that's what that's what the thought is behind that is because he was informing the FBI and we should. We should make sure to tell everyone that just because you are a confidential informant doesn't make you a good guy.
0: Oh, no. I think of the the line in Reservoir Dogs. Do you remember Reservoir Dogs? Yeah. Where he's sitting in the thing, the Tim Roth character, and he's like, oh, yeah, the the longshoreman who's given them the job. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He did this. And the cop who's training him said, he's not a good guy. He's a scumbag. And he ratted out his friends. Don't ever forget that. And that's it. I mean Trump is a rat and and uh, a mole, really. you know he's a, he's a rodent of some form. And I think your point is well taken. He's not a good person at all. Um, he's disloyal, which is ironic because he demands loyalty of everyone, but is himself disloyal. But it also, yes, it explains why he never went to jail. And you know, Trump didn't shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. Like these money crimes are in the grand scheme of things. they're hard to explain. They're hard to, they take a lot of energy and resources to prove. Um, so, you know, the thinking is, hey, this guy's going to give us this. We'll let his little thing go away. Mm. The problem is when you keep doing that, it, it, it um, empowers him to keep doing it mm. and to get more and more brazen. We're seeing it now. I mean, because of the impeachment thing didn't work, you know, we didn't get rid of him via impeachment. Now he's doing the same stuff that he did to Ukraine more publicly, you know, the same tactics, the same thing. Um, he's just never learned. He's never had any consequences for his actions, which is a problem. So, mm. um, but going back to the timeline, this happened during the seventies and eighties with the FBI during the late eighties, early nineties, and especially after the fall of the Soviet union, the Russian mafia comes to, especially New York city, but elsewhere, and basically takes over for the, uh, the, the mob that was here, the Italian mob, the Cosa Nostra. um, And this is a new kind of thing because it's not sort of the quaint mob that you think of with The Godfather and Tony Soprano. It's more like Spectre from the James Bond movies. It's like, it's transnational. There's lots of, you know, high-end money laundering and um, sex trafficking and arms dealing and blood diamonds and anything bad that you can think of um, nuclear arms shipments, you know, bad, bad, bad stuff is what they're dealing in um, because there's a market for it. So he's involved himself with these people and they all kind of have ties to him. I mean, it's pretty, this is all in reporting. Mm-hmm. The press should have been writing this stuff and going back into their own archives while he was running for president instead of talking about his fucking hair or whatever, but they seem to be incapable of writing about anything other than the goddamn horse race. Even now, it's it's the horse race. That's all they care about. And it's really frustrating because, you know, the the job of the press is to vet. Anyway, so the Russian mob figures come in and they're all kind of, you know, they live in Trump Tower. Trump Tower is like a, a, it's like a hotspot for all of this activity, the mob activity. Um, there's the town in Florida that is also, and Trump is basically helping these guys launder their money because they come in, they have shell corporations and he allows, he's one of two people in New York city that will allow purchases of property or purchases of, of apartments in his buildings, uh, via shell corporations that are anonymous. Mm-hmm. So obviously all these people are going to go there. They're going to buy up the stuff and he doesn't care.
2: This is up. Op- Public reporting as well, too. I mean, we had we know about the red flags from FinCEN where, you know, they were showing eighty four million dollars in real estate transactions in Florida were red flagged. Um, we talk about Rob Lovlev and, and his purchase of the Trump mansion uh, in, in Florida and reselling it for twice the amount in a, in a soft market like just this is all also all public reporting. These aren't just things that, you know, people are pulling out of thin air.
0: No, it's public and it's been out there for a long time, and I think I think people just don't because it wasn't taken seriously at the time in 2015, 2016 because it wasn't reported as the horror that it should have been and the disqualifying thing that it should have been. Sure. I think at this point, people assume, and maybe you know, they're they're not illogical, assuming, hey, if this guy really did something wrong, we would know by now.
2: You know, they would have
0: gotten arrested already. He would have this, blah, blah, blah. They're sick of hearing about it. But I also think people don't really understand how, how evil these people are that he's doing business with and and the kinds of things that they do. And it, you know, there is no bottom. You know, we say that about Trump all the time, but he's just doing what his overlords command. They have no bottom.
2: Yeah. And the way that the media was portraying it, even the public reporting was like, oh, well, you know, prigozhin he's a chef and he owns a catering company and they do the meal contracts for the Russian army. That's what that guy does, you know. And and, and you're like, well, he does other things, too.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it, it they just won't call it what it is. And And again, you know, maybe they have reasons for doing so. I mean, they're afraid or they don't it, it's hard to change the narrative mid-stride. And most of these media, especially on TV, they just care about the horse race. And, oh my God, Trump said the darndest thing, you know, every goddamn day. And it continues still. He says some dumb thing and everybody stops what they're doing and just talks about it constantly. And it's like, guys, stop. Just talk about what we know about the guy Mm. and educate the public why the guy is bad. I mean, he knew about the virus and the outbreak in at least November and did nothing about it for months. I mean, the only explanation for that is that he's, he's actively, he doesn't care. He's actively trying to kill us all either to monetize it or because that's what his masters in Moscow have uh, want.
2: That and, and to win the election. But this is this is his view. And we know, and, you know, to keep the basically the only thing he's got to run on is the economy. And when Dr. Masoner came out and, and, and said, you, we're all going to be this is going to happen and it's going to be bad. And he almost fired her and was clearly, clearly upset that she had come out uh, and told the public these things. Uh, without his permission or going through him first. Uh, And and, and so it it becomes clear through his behavior, not through anybody guessing anything, that his number one thing is to win the election on the economy. And he can't do that if there's no economy.
0: Right, right. And it's, you know, and he could have, he could have, there's so many moments in during the last, just to talk about the corona thing. There's so many moments when he could have just let certain things play out and it probably would have been OK. Like even going back in the documents, I think Azar, Alex Azar, was is probably one of the, the more competent members of the cabinet and seemed to at least understand what was going to happen and had some sort of handle on it. And as soon as they brought him in and it seemed like he was going to do something, Trump was like, oh, Pence is going to be in charge of this now. And then we never heard from Azar again. If he just let Azar do the job that he was supposed to do, maybe we wouldn't be in this mess. Maybe it wouldn't be as bad. And Pence, too, like, I, I remember tweeting this at the time, like, Pence, this is actually a good opportunity for him to kind of like, you know, he, he, there's a lot of incentive to succeed here because he could come in, take over this thing, and completely alter the public perception of him. And he didn't do it at all. He just, he just sits there and nods like a moron, when it, whatever tr- Trump says. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's hard to draw any other conclusion other than he's in on it. And he also wants us all to die. I mean, that's what's happening by the, by the inaction and the, the way that they're hoarding the, the PPE and whatever the hell Kushner's up to. We don't even know yet the extent of, of that. I'm sure it's going to be terrible when mm-hmm. we find out what actually is happening. But to have the governors have to, you know, sort of lobby publicly and almost beg for supplies and for help from the federal government is just it's insane. Yeah. No, I, I don't understand. I don't understand why why his approval numbers are as high as they are.
2: Yeah, I don't get to get it either. But, you know, maybe do,
0: Michael Cohen is rigging the polls again.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but we won't know because <laughs> Mueller didn't investigate that. Um, so. You know, this goes back to um, talking to what we were talking about before with, you know, like these people in the intelligence community who know what they know. And I remember talking to Jack Bryan. You know, he directed and wrote Active Measures, the documentary on Netflix. And and we, we both came great, to the same. Great, con- yeah. It is. And he and I both came to the same conclusion. Why are you fucking with the CIA? Like, that is not a wise thing to do. Now, we were both at the time like no one's going to come out and call it out and whistleblow it and, you know, call him out as either an informant or call him out as as an asset. But is that really who you want to mess with?
0: I think we all thought that. And I, you know, part of this is the way that we perceive these agencies and and the power that we sort of think that they have based on movies that we've seen and books that we've read and TV shows that we've watched, you know, like I used to watch scandal and that was a really fun show. And it's like, if, if there was a command and a B613, Trump's presidency would have been over in two days. You know, there isn't anybody as, as far as we can tell that I can see there isn't anybody in the CIA that's actually doing anything like that. They're, they're mostly just analysts and they're nerds, as Lincoln's Bible puts it, sitting around doing analysis, reading the, te- you know, reading the stuff and trying to, to sort of think what's going to happen and, and, and give give uh, information. I mean, they're not ultimately I- intelligence gathering is about that. It's about intelligence, not about um, you know, taking active, uh, active measures, I was going to say, <laughs> but taking action that goes outside of its purview. So, but we sort of think that that's what they do, but they, I guess, really don't is my point. So, um, you know, who, who there is going to stand up and, and do something? And I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to throw the IC under the bus here because people have tried. I, I think that, that, you know, from where I sit, they it's been very obvious by the statements that, that have come out and stuff like that, that they know how dangerous this guy is. Like you get a guy like um, um, Brennan and, uh, you know, the, the people go uh, on Twitter and, and say that Trump is is bad. I mean, I, these are people that generally are stayed and don't comment on anything. Yeah. You know, they glomar everything for 30 years and then they tweet that Trump is, is horrible. I mean, what does that tell you? You know, that that that's that's pretty extreme. But nobody seems to be able to, uh, you know, make the, the intellectual leap that hey, if this guy that used to be like the, the director of, uh, you know, the NSA is suddenly tweeting that Trump is a bad actor, maybe that's bad. Maybe we should actually, you know, give that more weight than something that somebody else says. Mm. Um, I
2: and don't know. So is that sort of the conclusion you're trying to draw here? Is that? The media should be focusing on uh, the the correct things and not, like you know, inject yourself with bleach today. Um, And that, uh, but do do you also draw conclusions about the intelligence community?
0: I think it's both things. I mean, the media absolutely, positively shat the bed. They did it in 2016. They didn't learn from their mistakes. They continue to be bad now. And when I say the media, I think I should be. I should be clear what I mean. There are lots of really great journalists doing really great journalism. But when I say the mainstream media, it's really the editors. It's the pundits. It's the people who decide what the headlines are going to be and what's going to get tweeted out and, and who help shape the actual narrative of news that we watch. That's the, thing, that's the part that's completely in the bag for Trump for whatever reason. Uh, there's a thousand different reasons why it works the way that it works. Not all of them are bad or nefarious, hmm. but those people um, see, just are just seem incapable of, of presenting uh, the story the way that it needs to be presented. Like, uh, as an example, the New York Times has been terrible and, and excellent. It, it, it's like schizo- schizoid the way that that it is. They had that terrible... Um, you know, investigating Russia, FBI finds no sign of mm-hmm. Trump, whatever, back in October of 2016, which is the worst news article of my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, and absolutely helped give him the election for sure. Mm-hmm. But they also did that wonderful uh, piece that ran in the Times Magazine about Fred and the taxes and all these laws that he broke. And oh, that yeah. story, It just it went nowhere. I mean, it came out and it was just gone. Whoever the people are that decide to push these things did not push that story hard enough.
2: Could part of it be our fault as consumers as to what we tend to gravitate toward uh, and click on um, sensational wise versus a very long investigative piece about finances in a family going back, uh, you know, for decades? Um you know i guess we get then we get to a chicken and egg situation which came first the the idiot electorate or the asshole media you know like which <laughs> came first um and i i i honestly don't know the answer to that but i can promise you that that story didn't do well partly because it wasn't pushed it was probably on page 6 or something oh it was in the magazine that's right and secondly be, because because it's boring af nobody's going to read it i mean not to folks like you and i or people who are probably listening to this program. But it's not, you know, Trump tells and says to inject bleach, what a dumbass, and we all get a good laugh out of it. And and we move on to the next thing, versus, you know, you should really, you know, he doesn't have two nickels to rub together. And he's, you know, mysterious $50 million loans to himself through other businesses from his own businesses that are paid off by Deutsche Bank, and then a subsidiary of Deutsche Bank, like people are like, asleep by the time they get to the words deutsche bank
0: right but and they have and there wasn't even any salacious details in that article to keep going like remember when the steel dossier finally got leaked all anybody could write about was the stupid peepee tape the golden mm-hmm. showers thing which is on page two i think of it
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's like they didn't even read it they read like as far as they needed to to get to that and then they gave up and they just wrote about that and everyone laughed and then that was the other you know that, like they're yeah, I don't know. I think it's partly the media's fault, and it's partly the IC's fault for not, like, you know, utilizing the media better. And at this point, I don't know. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I think they were always hoping that something would happen that would would mean that they didn't have to take any possibly illegal action to prevent, you know, to come out the whistleblower, whatever you want to call it. Like, I'm sure that when he was impeached, they were probably like, great, he's impeached. Now we can put him on trial and this will happen. And of course the, the Republicans just didn't allow a fair trial.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, how do you, how do you even game plan for that? Like you kind of have to assume you if, if the game isn't even played fairly in the United States at that level, I mean, you can't pin that on the IC either. I mean, that's the fault of the Republicans, and it's also the fault of Roberts, by the way, who just sat there like a potted plant and didn't do anything and allowed this travesty to happen. Mm. Um, you know, and if and, he was and... removed at that point and Pence is there, maybe maybe the coronavirus doesn't kill as many people. By the way.
2: Oh, of course, totally. I would I would put uh, I would put all the money we don't have in the bank anymore on that. <laughs> But um, any anyhow, um, so t- to wrap this up, any silver linings, any conclusions, uh, any uh, you know uh, proverbial Trumpian light at the end of the tunnel that you might or might not see? Or, or is this just how it is and, and we have to either learn from it and move on or perish like sweater bunnies? What's the deal?
0: <laughs> I think that it's important that people continue to educate themselves about who this guy is and to really seek out the truth about him. And I think, like, We've joked now all through this about the Lysol and the bleach jokes and this and that, but I really do feel like that was a a turning point of sorts. Even though, ironically, what's her name? Burks, when she said, oh, he had thought of this and he was still thinking out loud when he talked, I am quite sure that that's true, and he didn't actually mean to suggest that we do it, but the fact is he's known about this thing for five goddamn months, and I think everybody has had that thought, Oh man, if this four Oh nine spray can kill the coronavirus, what if we could somehow get it in our lungs? And then you think, Oh, but that will kill me. And then you put that thought away as a stupid thought. Right. Sure. But he, it took him five months to have that thought. And then he didn't <laughs> reject it within five seconds and had to talk about it at a press conference with all these people. And it's like, you know, he's so incompetent. Um, but I think that that turned the corner a little bit. I think it's hard to come back from something like that. He's a laughingstock and everybody seems to know it. So, it, you know, I've said this so many times in the last three and a half years. Oh, this is a turning point now. And it it is. But it just it, it's yeah. like a, a never ending Russian nesting doll. That yeah. You never can quite get to the bottom. Of.
2: It's it's a series of tiny turning points. Right. Just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Well,
0: but I and I don't know. I mean, I don't think they can impeach him now. I think that they can't physically; they can't go there and do it. I don't think there's enough time between now and the election to do it. No, Um, I don't think there's any appetite politically for it.
2: No, I don't even have. I don't even have that appetite. You know, like because the the Senate trial is going to be a hoax and a sham anyway. So let's let's maybe try to save some lives. And yeah,
0: get get money. I I think it's going to come down to McConnell is going to have to look at the numbers and say. Oh, my God, if we let this guy run, we're going to lose the Senate forever. We have to get rid of him right now. And he's going to do that thing that, you know, that happened with Nixon. And he's going to go talk to him and say, you need to resign now. You think? And if that that's really I think that's the only thing that could happen between now and then.
2: Yeah, obviously. And But you and I have been saying for a long time his best and only option out of this is to resign so he can get a pardon uh, and skate. That's that's really his best and only option. He is he is not going to win in November, uh, at least I don't think so. Um, you know, just looking at at some of the early primary states in Wisconsin and, and the, the numbers of people who are turning out to vote. And um, if he loses the economy, which he has, uh, again, what's he going to run on? And so, uh, yeah, the writing's on the wall, but we'll see how he handles it. He doesn't seem to be like, you know, a lot of folks are saying he doesn't seem to be like the kind of guy to just walk away, you know.
0: I, but I disagree. I mean, I think he is the kind of guy to walk away. I think he's a big wimp, and he always has been. And he's he's historically he's been very happy to walk away from. I'm going to sue you, and da da da. And then there's a quiet thing that happens, and he and he gives up. Yeah. You know. But the problem is that the incentive for him to remain is that the instant that he is not the president, they are going to indict him in New York State. Yeah. Cause then they don't have to wait for the documents anymore, and all this all this stuff will will come hammering down on him which he's well aware of i would think
2: yeah and and the state crime and the state crimes we can't he can't pardon pence
0: can't pardon the state crimes so and why is pence going to pardon him anyway i mean pence could get pence could say you know what i'm going to pardon you and then get become president and be like yeah i haven't changed my mind mm-hmm. you know like what 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 possible incentive is there for pence to pardon him i mean <laughs> you know, i think that's a that's a big assumption so
2: yeah yeah, yeah. i don't
0: know I, I i think i think we just have to hope for the best in, in November. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is Biden is obviously up there in years. Mm. And I was worried a little bit about the, just the the, the physical rigors of campaigning yeah. for months and months. Now he's just in his basement, yeah. you know, good, but he can rest. He can go on TV a little bit and uh, we'll, we'll keep him safe and healthy and well-rested. And that's what we need right now. We need Biden to be, uh, you know, kept as fit as a fiddle uh, until November. Yeah. And, um, so, that you, you asked about a silver lining. There's a silver lining. Our guy is going to be kept safe. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's that. So, uh, I don't know. It's going to be a crazy uh, last couple of months. I think there's you know, six months and a couple of weeks till the election. And um,
2: and we still have to figure out how we're going to vote.
0: <laughs> well, I, I don't, I'm not worried about that. I mean, I, th- I, I think that. Um, You know, there's no nothing is going to keep me from voting. I don't care who's there. I don't care if there's actual zombies that are going to, you know, bite my neck and turn me into a vamp. I'm I'm mutilating my undead references. But, you know, I'm I'm voting. You're voting. Everybody we know is voting. Period. You know, it's a risk that everybody is happy to take, except maybe the MAGA people who will stay home, because by then probably it might they might clue into the fact that this is dangerous. So um, I don't think it helps them at all. Uh, I think it's the opposite. And I, I think it's going to be just that I, I think he's going to lose by a lot. That's well, I think. I think people are sick of him. They were sick of him before. Now they're now they're really sick of him. And now they they're going to blame him for what's happened. And, you know, well, you destroyed the economy and you killed grandma. Good job. Let's give you four more years. You know, yeah. no, I don't think so.
2: Yeah. Here's hoping he didn't get that crisis bump that he wanted um, he, as much as he tried to paint it as a war. Um But, you know, we'll see what happens. And uh, so thank you for coming and talking to me today here. You know, here's hoping that that's what goes on. And and, um, it's it's just it's been it's been an insane uh, three and a half years. So we just we have a little bit left to hang on. And and I think I think we'll I think we'll pull it out in November. So thanks for talking to me today. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on, on the Internet?
0: Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Greg Oliar, and then you can go to my Prevail page, which if you type in my name, G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R, the word Prevail, it will pop up magically, and you can read all my stuff there.
2: Magic. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the- magic. It literally
0: is magic. It's, no, it's not. I, I don't know. It, you know, when you think about the Wi-Fi and how these things work, it, it sort of does feel very magical it's so,
2: quite it's quite magical you know, and,
0: th- and thank god by the way for the for the wi-fi and the technology and all this stuff because quarantine would be very very difficult mm. without those things 100 um, <laughs> so
2: all right well thanks for joining us yeah and, and uh yeah, and we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Uh I'd I'd like to I'd like to get back on the phone with you after these uh SCOTUS cases and the Mueller Grand Jury material stay request is decided. I'd like to see where you think all that's going and um, Judge Reggie Walton is gonna be, you know, reviewing the unredacted full Mueller report uh and having a, a session about it on June eighteenth. So that's gonna be a fun a fun summer activity. Uh so <laughs> so We'll be in touch. So thanks very much, everybody. Greg Oliar. All
0: right. Stay safe.
2: You as well. All right, everybody. That is our show for today. Uh, thank you. Uh, again, the uh, The cocktail meet and greet was so much fun. Uh, I haven't played music in so long. My fingers hurt from the guitar, but, you know, maybe it's time to get my calluses back. Um, while we're sitting here in quarantine. So thank you for joining us for that. That was absolutely amazing. And thanks to Weedus for coming on and playing playing uh, songs with us. That was so much fun. Um, everybody, please take care of yourself and take care of each other. I've been A.G., and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn with engineering and editing by Mackenzie Mazel and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, production, and social media direction is by Amanda Reader. Fact checking and research by AG Jordan Coburn and Amanda Reader, and our knowledgeable listeners. Our web design and branding are by Joelle Reader with Moxie Design Studios, and our website is mullersheerode.com. MSW Media.